Scripture came to me. I didn't come to it. It came to me from a two-word phrase in that letter. I thought it came almost at once. The phrase is, Petits esprits. <clears throat> I shall translate it, pusillanimous ones. <laughs> but before I can place that phrase in its context, in Descartes' letter, I shall complete the paragraph that I began with. For a long time I had noticed that in matters of morality, it is sometimes necessary to follow opinions that we know to be highly uncertain, exactly as if they were indubitable. But as I wished to give myself entirely to the search for truth, I thought that it was necessary for me to take the directly opposite course and to reject as absolutely false everything in which I could imagine the least doubt in order to see if afterwards there remained something in my belief which was entirely indubitable. Thus, because our senses sometimes deceive us, I wish to suppose that there is nothing just as they make us imagine. And because there are some men who make mistakes in reasoning, even touching on the simplest matters of geometry and commit paralogisms, and judging that I was as subject to error as was any other, I rejected as false all the reasonings that I had formerly taken as demonstrations. And finally, considering that all the thoughts that we have when awake can also come to us when asleep without any of them being at that time true, I resolved to pretend that everything which had ever entered my mind was no more true than the illusions of my dreams. But immediately afterwards, I took notice that when I thus wished to think that all was false, it was absolutely necessary that I, who thought this, should be something. And noticing that this truth, I think therefore I am, was so firm and so assured that all the most extravagant suppositions of the skeptics were incapable of shaking it, I judged that I could receive it without scruple for the first principle of the philosophy that I was seeking. This paragraph contains, all over it, words in the first person singular. It begins with the word I. I don't know if I ought to tell you of the first meditations that I have made here. The I is surely Descartes. And the question is whether the foundations that Descartes made are firm enough. But later in the paragraph, what is to be rejected as absolutely false in the search for truth? Not everything which can be doubted, but rather everything in which I could imagine the least doubt. But in the search for truth, will we be able to be satisfied with what, with what Descartes could imagine to have the least doubt? 
Matters get more complicated with the I think, therefore I am. Can we any longer understand it as Descartes thinks, therefore Descartes is? And even if we change the tense, Descartes thought, therefore Descartes was, is it still so firm and assured that all the most extravagant suppositions of the skeptics are incapable of shaking it? Finally, Descartes, surely the I is Descartes again, judges that, judges that he could receive it not as the first principle of philosophy simply, but as the first principle of the philosophy that I was seeking. I'm still planning to get to the letter of Descartes in which the phrase pusillanimous ones appears. But first I want to retreat from the beginning of the fourth part of the discourse to the first part. I move to do this because of the word philosophy in the phrase, the first principle of the philosophy that I was seeking, the phrase that ends the first paragraph. The use of the word of philosophy here then recalls Descartes' earlier mention of it in the discourse where he's talking about his useful studies. Languages, reading of ancient books, eloquence, poesy, mathematics, moral treatises, theology, philosophy, jurisprudence, medicine, and other sciences. Of philosophy, Descartes makes two remarks. First, that it gives us <clears throat> the means of speaking with the appearance of truth about all things. I'll start that over. Philosophy gives us the means of speaking with the appearance of the truth about all things and of making ourselves admired by the less learned. And again, I shall say nothing of philosophy except that it has been cultivated by the most excellent minds for many centuries, and that nevertheless, nothing has been discovered in it which is not disputed and consequently doubted, doubtful. Certainly we would not expect to find from this, except to Descartes' great embarrassment, in the writings of his pre predecessors, a first principle that he, Descartes, would find indubitable. Still less the very one that he says he does find indubitable. Thus we're not surprised to read that as soon as he was old enough that he gave up studying under his tutors and resolved to search for no other knowledge but that which could be found in myself or in the great book of the world. Here is the beginning of the letter of Descartes in which that phrase appears. I am obliged to you for acquainting me with the passage of St. Augustine that has some relation to my I think therefore I am. I have been to read it today in the library of this town. I'll interrupt the letter now to read to you some of what Descartes read. This is St. Augustine, City of God. We indeed recognize in ourselves an image of God, even if the image is not equal to him, but rather far short of being so. This image is not co-eternal, 
and to sum the matter up briefly, it is not formed of the same substance of which God is. Yet it is nearer to him in the scale of nature than any other thing created by him, although it still requires to be reshaped and perfected in order to be nearest to him in its likeness. For we are and know that we are and we love our existence and our knowledge of it. Moreover, in these three things of which I have spoken, no falsehood resembling truth disturbs us. For these things we do not touch by any bodily sense, as we do perceive colors by seeing them, sounds by hearing them, odors by smelling them, so forth. We also have images of these sensible things similar to them but no longer embodied. They live in our minds. We hold them in our memory and are stirred by the images themselves into longing for such things. But it is without any deceptive play of my imagination or of phantasms, it's most certain for me that I am and that I know that I am and that I love this being and knowing. In the face of these true things, I fear no arguments of the academicians saying, what if you should be mistaken? For if I am mistaken, I am. For he who is not cannot be mistaken. I'll stop reading here, but Augustine goes on to show, or to try to show, that he knows that he is and that he loves his knowing and his being those three things being an image of the Trinity. Back to Descartes' letter. I have been to read it today in the library of this town, and I find that he does use it to prove the certainty of our existence and goes on to show that there is a certain likeness of the Trinity in us, in that we are, we know that we are, we love this being and knowledge that is in us. I use it to make known that this me which thinks is an immaterial substance and that it is nothing bodily. We do two very different things. But in itself, it's such a clear and natural thing to drop from the pen of anyone whatever. But I am very glad to find myself in agreement in this with such a great figure as St. Augustine, if only to stop the mouths of those pusillanimous ones who've tried to find fault with what I have written. Now the lecture can begin. I shall try to present some arguments against Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And I shall ask you to reflect and consider whether they are arguments of pusillanimous ones but I don't plan to simply list a set of arguments, for the arguments, most of them, depend on how Descartes uses the four or five words in his, I think, therefore I am. Yet before one can turn to the word think, or the word therefore, there is a prior question, a prior attempt to find fault with Descartes I think, therefore, I am, as the first principle of the philosophy for which he is seeking. <laughs>
in doubting, and I quote, everything in which I can imagine the least doubt, end quote, can I not doubt that it is possible to thoroughly know the meaning of the words, what therefore means, or what being means? Secondly, wouldn't defining these terms, if it is possible to do so, be the first principle? That is, the same requirement that's made in Euclid, to, that it is a book of elements, that it should begin with definitions, postulates, common notions. Shouldn't Descartes, if he has a claim to make a beginning, begin to, by defining his terms? Wouldn't defining these terms then be the first principle, rather than, I think, I, therefore I am, be the first principle? To face the first question, that is, that reason speech does not have meaning, is to realize that it cannot be posed. Could this objection come from a pusillanimous one? How could he raise his doubt? Not by means of any language, for it is exactly reason speech that he calls into question. From its own truth, its own inexpressibility follows. The use of language is obviously something about which Descartes cannot imagine the least doubt. And we shall see this when we quote, give a quotation from Descartes himself to face the second problem about whether or not he had to define thinking, being, etc. The definitions being the first principles of his philosophy thus replacing the I think, therefore I am as the starting point. This quotation is from the Principles of Philosophy, Descartes. I've often noticed that philosophers are, in trying to explain by definitions logically constructed, things which were perfectly simple in themselves. They thereby render them but more obscure and when I stated this proposition, I think therefore I am, as the first and most certain which presents itself to those who philosophize in orderly fashion, I did not for all that deny that we must first of all know what is knowledge, what is existence, what is certainty, etc. But because these are notions of the simplest possible kind, which of themselves give us no knowledge of anything that exists, I did not think them worthy of being put on record. End of quotation. Apparently, Descartes says that it does come from a pusillanimous one. And we will begin to look into the terms, not giving definitions, I hope, of the type that he criticizes. We will begin to look into the terms beginning with therefore, the middle word, I think, therefore I am. Therefore usually implies that an implication of some kind is taking place. We shall use as our model to see what, that there is more than one kind of therefore, a proposition of Euclid, the Pythagorean theorem, the 47th proposition of the first book, we begin with the enunciation. In right-angled triangles, the square on the side subtending the right angle 
is equal to the side to the squares on the sides containing the right angle. The setting out Let ABC be a right angle triangle with the triangle BAC right. The construction that consists of put placing squares on the three sides, and then it consists of other curious lines. For the moment, I'll only put one of them. All right, I'll put the other. <laughs> the proof. The proof consists, as I recall, in showing that this, this square is equal to this rectangle. This square is equal to this ra rectangle. Consequently, the square on BC is equal to the square on AB and the square on AC. But that is not the conclusion. And this is the therefore I'm waiting for. The conclusion is, therefore, in right angle triangles, the square on the side subtending the right angle is equal to the squares on the sides containing the right angle. Since we proved the proposition, we didn't really, since we proved the proposition only for the specific triangle ABC, how can we claim that it holds for right angle triangles, any whatsoever? Because we make use of nothing special about the triangle, except that it contains a right angle, we know in advance that given any other right triangle, in any other position whatsoever, that we shall be able to draw the same conclusion. Now that's a fairly subtle use of therefore, a passing from the particular to the general. I want to look, for, we will have to come back to that in a moment, but I want to look now at a simpler kind of therefore, which we can see in this same proposition. Let's recall how uh, Euclid proves it. First, he proves that the two the two triangles are equal. Then he notices that, or we can notice at least, that the square and the rectangle are parallelograms. Hopefully, we remember that a parallelogram is double a triangle when they have the same base and lie between the same parallels. <clears throat> this square and this triangle lie on this same base and between these same parallels. This rectangle and this triangle lie on the same base and between those parallels. 
And this is the part I want. <clears throat> now doubles of equals are equal. The square and the rectangle are doubles of equal triangles. Therefore, the square and the rectangle are equal. That's a second therefore, radically different from the first. Can we use that second therefore to deduce I am? All we have apparently is, I think therefore I am. How can we turn that into reasoning of the same kind as doubles of equals are equal, are equals. The square and the rectangles are doubles of equal triangles. Therefore, the square and the rectangle are equal. Here is a suggestion. Everything that thinks is, I think, therefore I am. Is that the reasoning that Descartes had in mind? We'll have to ask, how can we know, how could we know that everything that thinks is? Isn't it exactly like the conclusion in the proof of the Pythagorean theorem? We learn, or don't do we, that everything that thinks is by seeing there's nothing special to any thinking person about I think, therefore I am. Nothing special in the sense that every person can learn it from the awareness of himself. Descartes puts it in this way, for it is the nature of our mind to form general propositions from knowledge of particulars. But things are not so simple here. Let me reread again the same passage from the principles of philosophy, but this time I shall restore a phrase that I omitted the last time. When I said that the proposition, I think therefore I am, is the first and most certain to present itself to a person who philosophizes in an orderly fashion, I was not thereby denying the necessity of prior knowledge, the necessity of prior knowledge of what thought, certainty, and existence are, and that, in order to think, it's necessary to exist. Descartes is saying one has prior knowledge of, in order to think, it's necessary to exist, and other matters of this sort. But because these notions are so simple that of themselves they do not give us knowledge of any existing thing, I, do not, I, <clears throat> I did not think that they needed to be mentioned. Now Descartes first says that we learn the general from the particular. And next he says that we know it prior to the particular. How shall we escape this seeming contradiction? There is a conversation in which it's recorded the, in which there is recorded Descartes' attempts to cope with this problem. He says, one, everything that thinks is, is prior to, I think, therefore I am. Two, I think, therefore I am, depends on everything that thinks is. Three, 
I attend only to what I experience in myself and not to the general notion everything that thinks is when I reach the conclusion, I think, therefore, I am. Four, we consider these general propositions, that is, propositions like everything that thinks is, in particulars. I'm not sure exactly how Descartes thinks he has avoided the contradiction. The following is what I'm tempted to answer for him. In the order of discovery, everything that thinks is, is empty, because such notions do not teach us that anything exists. In the order of being, everything that thinks is rules over the I think, therefore I am. But Descartes is not interested in pursuing the order of being, for such a pursuit will not lead us to advance beyond Aristotle. If he were, he would not have such scorn about trying to define such terms as being. Thus, we have no need of the major premise, for we are, I'm sorry, <clears throat> for, for we are in the order of discovery, and in addition, everything that thinks is, is hypothetical, in the sense that it must mean, if anything thinks, then it is. Moreover, we have no need of it to conclude, I think, therefore I am, which follows more immediately, more self-evidently, and more simply than anything from syllogistic reasoning ever does. Then is the word therefore necessary at all, since it can mislead us into believing that the reasoning is syllogistic. Apparently, Descartes thinks that we can eliminate it, since in the meditations, the I think, therefore I am is abandoned in favor of the formulation I am, I exist, which is said to be necessarily true every time it is pronounced or conceived in my mind. Let me try to make formulations for the meditations. Three different formulations. When I am deceived, I am. When I think, I am. Or when I think, I am something. My whole attempt there is to avoid, therefore. And apparently we can omit the word therefore. But we certainly seem unable to avoid the word think. I, therefore I am. But can we replace it by other words? Words radically different. I walk, therefore I am. I breathe, therefore I am. Is that suggestion pusillanimous? These are both examples that Descartes had to face. The latter, I breathe, therefore I am, Descartes answers in a letter written a year after the publication of the discourse. Instead of reading Descartes' reply, we can figure out for ourselves what the reply should be. Remember that in the paragraph from the discourse <coughs> with which the reading, the lecture began, Descartes supposed or pretended to suppose that there is nothing such as the senses make us imagine. What other than the senses make us imagine that we have lungs, that we breathe? Let us grant that our breathing 
implies our existence. Let us grant that our breathing implies our existence, but we must first prove or know that we are breathing. I can doubt that I'm breathing, but I cannot doubt that I doubt. I breathe, therefore I am, in this sense, now to quote from Descartes, I breathe, therefore I am, in this sense, is no other thing than to say, I think, therefore I am. And if we take care, we shall find that all other propositions from which we can conclude our existence come back to this very same one. So much for our attempt to replace I think by I breathe. If it does turn out that the attempt to conclude I am from I walk or I breathe is an example from a pusillanimous one, that is, if the word think is not replaceable by such words as walk or breathe, let us consider whether it is a very pusillanimous one from which this question arises. Why can't I doubt that I think? The answer would seem to be, you can't ask that unless you fail to understand what I mean by thinking. For I use thinking in a very broad way so that it includes doubting. To quote a character in Descartes' dialogue, The Search After Truth, for what is doubting but a way of thinking? In the same letter that Descartes treats, I breathe, therefore I am, he treats of his broad use of the word thought. I quote, it does not seem to me a fiction, but a truth which nobody should deny, that there's nothing in our power except our thoughts. At least if you take the word thought as I do to cover all the operations of the soul so that not only meditations and acts of the will, but even activities of seeing and hearing and deciding on one movement rather than another are thoughts. Thus all operations of the will, the intellect, the imagination and the senses are thoughts. That is, doubting, affirming, denying, willing, nilling, etc., are ways of thinking. We shall return to this broad use of thinking later, but it is certainly broad enough to answer the question, why can't I doubt that I think? Since doubting is a way of thinking, whenever I doubt, I think. Thus, in particular, when I doubt I think, I think. Let us turn to the word I. <clears throat> in the passage that I read in the very beginning of the lecture from the discourse, Descartes concluded that he is. He continues in the next paragraph by asking what he is. Let us consider the text with the hope that what he is will give us the I we are searching for. At the same time, however, by accenting it what he is instead of what he is, we shall hope to find the am in I think, therefore I am. I quote, then examining attentively what I was and seeing that I could pretend that I had no body and that there was no world nor any place where I was, 
but I could not pretend because of this that I did not exist. On the contrary, from the very fact that I doubted the truth of other things, it followed very evidently and very certainly that I was. Whereas if I had only ceased to think, even though all the rest of what I imagined had been true, I would have had no reason to believe that I had existed. I knew from this that I was a substance whose whole essence or nature is only to think. I'll repeat that. I knew from this that I was a substance whose whole essence or nature is only to think, and who, in order to be, need have no place nor depend on anything material. So that this me, that is to say the soul, by which I am what I am, is entirely distinct from the body and is even easier to know than the body. Even if the body were not, it would not cease to be what it is. Then what I am, with the I and am unseparated, seems to turn out to be a substance entirely distinct from the body, whose whole essence is to think. Doesn't that say then, and I'm about to find fault or attempt to, running the risk of being vicariously a pusillanimous one. Doesn't that say I am, that I am is identically, I think? That is, given Descartes' understanding of what I am, namely, a substance whose whole essence is only to think, if I am is wholly to think, then I am cannot be deduced from I think because I am is identical with I think. Let me relax a moment and answer this in a most un-Cartesian way. Let us suppose that you have read a mystery story, that you have read it very carefully, that you have deduced, rather cleverly you thought, that the murderer is the butler. <laughs> Wouldn't you be rather angry and inclined to call an any, and inclined to call anyone a pusillanimous one, should he tell you that you haven't deduced anything at all? Why, you ask? Because your claim is that the, murder and, that the murderer and the butler are identically the same person. Therefore, if I substitute in the sentence, the butler is the murderer, the word butler for murderer, since they are identically the same man, then I obtain the sentence, the butler is the butler, and that isn't anything to deduce. I knew that much without bothering to read the story. <laughs> to answer the question seriously, we must turn to what Descartes means by being, or to use the name closer to Descartes' Latin in his Principles of Philosophy, what Descartes means by substance, as in the sentence, I knew that I was a substance whose whole essence or nature is only to think. Fortunately, Descartes addresses himself to precisely that question, namely what substance is, in his 51st principle. By substance, we can understand nothing else than a thing which so exists that it needs no other thing in order to exist. I'll read that again. By substance, we can understand nothing else than a thing which so exists 
that it needs no other thing in order to exist. Descartes goes on to say that in the fullest sense, there is no other substance than God. But to quote from the next principle, there are things, and Descartes has in mind thinking substance and corporeal substance, there are things which need only the concurrence of God. At this point, I'm going to interrupt the question about whether I think is identical to I am, to find fault in a wilder way with Descartes' I think, therefore I am. And I'm going to interrupt because to deal with this wilder question might help to throw light on the question of the identity of I think and I am. The wild question is, what evidence is there that there is a substance underlying thinking? What evidence is there for an I? The only experience we have is thinking. Sure, from I think you can deduce I am, but I don't have any experience of an I. From thinking alone without the I, it is impossible to deduce I am. Perhaps the best way to meet part of this fault finding is to admit it. And Descartes does admit it. He says that substance itself is not observed by us. How then can he claim it to be? I quote from the 52nd principle. We may easily discover it by means of its attributes because it is a common notion that nothing is possessed of no attributes. Thus, Descartes can deduce a thinking substance from thinking because thinking is an attribute and therefore must be attributed to something. That is to say, it must be attributed to some substance. Thus, substance is discovered every time that we are aware that we are thinking. But is Descartes begging the question here? If thinking is an attribute, then the name suggests that it must be attributed to something. How do we know that thinking cannot exist on its own? As Descartes' answer, I'd like to read a short passage from a letter. It is impossible for us ever to think of anything without at the same time having the idea of our soul as a thing capable of thinking whatever we think. Remember that Descartes intended to reject everything in which he could imagine the least doubt. To return to the question of whether I think and I am are identical, and therefore one could not be deduced from the other. Let me tell you how to solve this, but let me not give you the solution. Let us turn Descartes' I think, therefore I am around. If I am, therefore I think, is so firm and assured that all the most extravagant suppositions of the skeptics are incapable of shaking it, let us admit that the propositions are identical. And if not, let us entertain the possibility that it comes from a pusillanimous one. What follows is a digression, for it's not a fault finding directed at the I think, therefore I am as such but rather an argument against Descartes' claim that the whole essence of the soul is only to think. Descartes remarks on essence both positively and negatively. Negatively, he says, nothing which, without which a thing can still exist 
is comprised in its essence. I'll read that again. Nothing without which a thing can still exist is comprised in its essence. Positively. God could have created me without my being united with the body. Here's the objection to Descartes' understanding of what I am. It comes from Arnaud, writing an objection to the meditations. The example is mathematical, and again it has to do with the Pythagorean theorem. I can see that a certain knowledge of myself can be obtained without a knowledge of, of the body, but I'm not sure that I'm not in error in excluding the body from my essence. I shall explain by means of an example. Let us assume that a certain man is quite sure that the triangle in a semicircle is right-angled. Let us assume that a certain man is quite sure that the triangle in a semicircle is right-angled. But suppose that he has not yet learned, or worse, misled by some fallacy, he denies that the square on the base equals the squares on the sides. Now, according to Descartes' reasoning, he will see himself confirmed in his false belief. For he will argue that while I clearly and distinctly perceive this triangle is right-angled, I yet doubt whether the square on its base is equal to the squares on the sides. Hence, the equality of the square on the base and those on the sides does not belong to its essence. Besides, since I know that all things I clearly and distinctly understand can be created by God, just as I conceive them to exist, it is sufficient for me, in order to be sure that one thing is distinct from another, to be able to comprehend the one clearly and distinctly apart from the other, because it can be so isolated by God. But I clearly and distinctly understand that this triangle is right-angled without comprehending that the square on its base is equal to the squares on its side. Hence, God can, at least, can create a right-angled triangle, the square on the base of which is not equal to the squares on the sides. Just a, And I continue to quote, just as a man errs in not believing in the Pythagorean theorem, in a triangle which he clearly and distinctly knows to be right-angled, so why am I not, perhaps, in the wrong in thinking that nothing else belongs to my nature, which I clearly and distinctly know to be something that thinks, except to be this thinking being? And Arnaud concludes, is it devastatingly? Perhaps it also belongs to my essence to be something extended. Descartes makes three replies that in Descartes' own separation between thinking substance and extended substance, notice that he has clear and distinct ideas of two substances, whereas in the example of our nose, the triangle might be a substance, but the Pythagorean ratio surely is not. Secondly, they're not separable. 
that is, the two items being, I know this is a Next, imagine someone who is inexperienced in such matters. Geometrical proofs for me, political theory for you. Suppose further that he can't seem to comprehend. And suppose that you try to discuss it with him very clearly and in very different ways. But he seems perplexed and he questions you. And finally, he says, I believe that I see. And you question him further, this way and that. Finally, he says, I really see. Now, if you were com re completely committed in that discussion, you forgot that you are so and so many feet tall, that you have such colored hair, that you have an important letter to write, an appointment at the dentist tomorrow. Insofar as you were committed and thinking only of the matter at hand, and insofar as he really did say, how did the two of you differ? Isn't it true that insofar as people really think, not think in the broad sense that Descartes takes it to have, now sensing, now doubting, isn't it true that insofar as people really think, nothing of the I remains? If I'm able to think in the highest sense, the I is not. For short, I think, therefore I'm not. I would like to add a note of caution. I don't expect that these examples are able to be maintained, but I don't know of anything wrong with the principle. What follows now is the last attempt to find fault with Descartes, with his I think, therefore I am. I give it in four steps. One, Descartes' I think, therefore I am is empty until I know what I am. Two, that the I as a thinking substance cannot be comprehended until we know what other kinds of substances there are. Three, this deficiency cannot be remedied until it is understood that thinking substances are entirely separate from bodies, that is, from extended substances. Four. Consequently, I think, therefore, I am is not the true beginning, but rather what it depends on for the understanding of it is the true beginning, namely bodies. This argument is easy to make, for we can argue that when Descartes says what I am is entirely distinct from the body, he does not know at this stage of discovery that bodies are. He does know, however, and I quote, because we're unable, because it's impossible to conceive a shape while denying that it has extension and to conceive an extension while denying that it is the extension of a shaped substance, he does know what extension is, namely the essential attribute of shaped bodies. But at this stage of the argument, we do not know that it is. But is it not wrong to consider this fault finding so mechanically? for it seems to point to an important fault, namely that Descartes, whatever he may say, really does begin with the idea of body as it can be dealt with by his mathematics. Remember that Descartes gave up his studies to search for no other knowledge but that which could be found in himself or in the great book of the world. 
I don't know whether or not Descartes knew of Galileo's philosophy is written in this grand book, The Universe, which stands continually open to our gaze. But the book cannot be understood unless we first learn to comprehend the language and read the letters in which it is composed. It is written in the language of mathematics, without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it. This was published 14 years before Descartes' discourse. And had he known, he certainly would not have disagreed. Remember what Descartes promises in the last book of the discourse. Knowledge that is very useful in this life. The discovery of a practical philosophy to know the force and action of fire, water, air, stars, the heavens, rather than a speculative philosophy of the schools. The invention of an infinity of artifacts which would allow us enjoyment of the fruits of the earth. Conserving our health ridding ourselves of illness and perhaps the debilitation of old age, in general, to be masters and possessors of nature. It would seem that these promises can be tested in no other way than by the success or failure of mathematical physics in actually meeting these goals. I don't think that this is the ultimate test, but the question here is, what do these promises have to do with Descartes' I think, therefore I am. I shall hazard this guess, excuse me, I shall hazard this guess by stressing that the I is essentially an I think. Descartes turns all of our attention toward the soul, which is said to be separated from the body, and it is easy for us to ignore and to fail to turn our critical thoughts to the fact that at the same time the body is separated from the soul, a body that a clear and distinct idea of which makes it only or nothing but extension. Now what the objector who used the example of the right, ang of the right angle triangle failed to notice was that he gave Descartes too much ground, too easily, when he admitted that we have a clear and distinct idea of body. For this turns out to mean that we have a mathematized idea of body. And when we admit it of the most difficult case, that is to say, the human body, it does in fact make it, make it exceedingly difficult or impossible to deny that the soul is entirely distinct from the body. But isn't this the very thing that one should subject to doubt, that the essence of body is extension? And shouldn't one use the human body as one's chief example against it? Let me suggest by analogy another mathematical example, almost as outrageous as the one that Descartes is perpetrating. For Ptolemy, we are living in the center of a gigantic sphere, the sphere of the fixed stars. The illustrations in Ptolemy's work, the Almagest, contain figures that are representations of the sphere, which from the reader's view is viewed as if from the outside. But that sphere has no outside. And yet it is so easy to fail to notice what a fantastic point of view we are taking. Descartes' subjection of all mathematical bodies under the mastery, I'm sorry, Descartes' subjection of all bodies under the mastery of his mathematical physics is just as incredible. 
Let me give you a rather extensive quotation from a 19th century work by Joseph Fourier, which is completely under the Cartesian spell. I begin the quotation. The analytical equations unknown to the ancient geometers, which Descartes was the first to introduce into the studies of curves and surfaces, are not restricted to the properties of figures and to those properties which are the objects of rational mechanics. They extend to all general phenomena. There cannot be a language more universal and more simple, more free from errors and from obscurities, that is to say, more worthy to express the invariable relations of natural things. Considered from this point of view, mathematical analysis is as extensive as nature itself. It defines all perceptible relations, measures times, spaces, forces, temperatures. This difficult science is formed slowly, but it preserves every principle which it has once acquired. It grows and strengthens itself incessantly in the midst of the many variations and errors of the human mind. Its chief attribute is clearness. It has no marks to express confused notions. It brings together the most diverse and discovers the hidden analogies which unite them. If matter escapes us as that of air and light by its extreme tenuity, if bodies are placed far from us in the immensity of space, if man wishes to know the aspect of the heavens at successive epochs separated by a great number of centuries, if the actions of gravity and of heat are exerted in the interior of the earth at depths which will always be inaccessible, Mathematical analysis can yet lay hold of the laws of these phenomena. It makes them present and measurable and seems to be a faculty of the human mind destined to supplement the shortness of life and the imperfections of the senses. And what is still more remarkable, it follows the same course in the study of all phenomena. Very beautiful. But isn't it possible to doubt this if we can remain free from the spell of it? The I think, therefore I am is Descartes' first step and a decisive step to casting that spell. As a means to show that I am certain that I am, it is useless and uncertain. But as the means to destruction of even the idea of a cosmos, and of the recreation of a world clearly and distinctly graspable by mathematical analysis, it threatens to sentence all fault finders to be known forever as pusillanimous ones. Thank you.